0: Hello and welcome back to Single Cell Science, our podcast about single cell RNA sequencing technologies with a focus on neuroscience. I'm Luis Seeker. And I am Sarah Jekyll. The last time we talked about the general bioinformatics workflow for the first few steps you need to do when you get your data from the sequencing lab, we talked about quality control, we talked about normalization, we talked about all the more tedious parts, but we were left in the end with a cleaned up object that you can use downstream. This object has genes in the rows and columns as cells, and includes corresponding metadata that tells you from which donors, from which batch, from which biological conditions your cells came from. In this episode, we are presenting the bioinformatics analysis downstream from that.
1: So basically, let's assume we have a beautifully cleaned up data set. So what are we going to do next with it?
0: And what people usually do then is that actually they don't want to take forward 20,000 of the genes. So usually you focus in on genes that are potentially very interesting for downstream analysis. So what you usually do is you look at how the variance of each gene is and you're not interested in those that have a very low variance. So this means those are genes that are not expressed at all in any cells but still passed your gene quality control or genes that are expressed in every cell and there's just no difference between one group or another. You want to find those that are highly expressed in some cells and very lowly expressed in others because those are the ones that might distinct cell groups. So usually you restrict the downstream analysis to the top, something between 2,000 and 5,000 genes that are potentially interesting. And you take those forwards.
1: Which does not mean that you delete the other genes from your dataset. They will still be there, but you don't consider them in the analysis.
0: Now, the next step would be that you either scale the data or you don't. So scaling the data means you adjust it for mean and standard deviation. That would have the advantage of actually considering lowly expressed genes in the same way as highly expressed genes. But then on the other hand, maybe we are not that much interested in very lowly expressed genes because it's more difficult to validate them in tissue. You have to come up with your best solution for it if you want to scale data or not. But usually what you what you do quite soon then in your analysis is you want to actually visualize your data set because you could describe your data set as a construct with as many dimensions as you as you have genes in your data set so it's something really complicated to understand with a human brain so what you usually do is a, a dimensional reduction where you collapse all those thousands of dimensions onto just a few usually well to visualize it two or sometimes three
1: because more we can't see I personally think that the dimensionality reduction and visualization part is generally the hardest to understand when dealing with single-cell RNA sequencing data, because the brain of most people is just not used to think in more than three dimensions and to understand what that means. And we actually do lose quite a lot of information with this dimensionality reduction. But of course, as Louise already said, we need this reduction for visualization because we cannot see more. But Louise, how do you do that?
0: Okay. So there are different um, dimensional reduction techniques out there. The most widely understood one in the scientific community, I think, is a PCA. It's a principal component analysis. And you will have seen that in different contexts before single cell RNA sequencing. And this is—it's just looking for new axes through your data sets that explain the most variance first. There's your first principal component, and then it's looking for the next axis that is explaining the next most variance in your data set. So there's the second principal component, and so on. So um, and then you can see at some point that actually adding more principal components is not explaining much of the variance anymore. So if you add more principal components it is probably not due to uh, much biological variance. It becomes more and more likely that the higher principal components are actually explaining technical variance. So principal components is a visualization uh, technique to visualize a very complex data set in two dimensions and you can see different clusters. So cells that will be similar cluster together where cells that are very different from those will cluster more separately. However, it is quite difficult for us to see differences in gene expression just using principal components analysis. So we usually um, choose a number of um, principal components that um, explains the most of the variance as input for another technique, um, usually either a tSNE or a UMAP. And this is what you will see in scientific presentations or in journals and articles um, as images. And they are usually very colorful. Each dot represents one cell. Cells that cluster together are usually of the same cell type or cell state. And cells that are further apart are different. I think what has become our most Use
1: technologies actually to cluster the cells uh, in uh, in the two or the three dimension. So it means it looks at the whole data set and then it makes clusters of cells. They are very similar in gene expression, um, and because this is actually something that we can understand, right? Because a cell that um, then you have clusters of cells, they are very similar, and mostly these cells are, for example, the
0: same cell type. Exactly. Just to clarify. Dimensional reduction is something different to clustering. So sometimes you already can see in a dimensionally reduced dataset that some cells group together or not. But on top of that, you usually use this dimensionally reduced dataset to run clustering algorithms to find cells that are more similar to each other than to other cells. And there are different clustering algorithms, you may hear this here and there, there's um, supervised and unsupervised, so sometimes you have to tell the program how many clusters you want to find, this is, uh, for example, k-means clustering, but um, more often you don't know how many clusters to expect, so you use something like, um, well, there are hierarchical clustering algorithms, they are graph-based clustering algorithms. Usually for bigger data sets, more and more the graph-based clustering algorithms are used. But um, whatever you use, you just want to find those cells that are more, more similar to each other in contrast to those that are quite different. Now the next thing you can do is you have all those those colorful dots in a UMAP or Disney plot. So what do you do next, Sarah? First, we need to annotate these clusters. (laughs) Exactly, yes.
1: How do we do that? So annotation means basically we need to know which cluster is what cell type. And for this, uh, the easiest way to do this is to look at the gene expression of that cluster. Um, And then you need to know your biology. And for example, Uh, Oligodendrocytes. It's very characteristic markers that express not genes markers or marker genes. They are not expressed in other cell types. Uh, So we look for these, and with this class, with these markers, we can actually annotate the cell clusters. For most of the clusters, it's actually very easy, but there are always some clusters where you don't really know what they are. This might be because even we don't know all the cells in our brain, or Uh, Some clusters, as Louis said, they are still not very good. They are dirty or even doublets or a combination of markers. And for this reason, we then cannot annotate them.
0: What are doublets? What are doublets?
1: (laughs) So um, as the name says, doublets are the problem that you captured two cells within one well or one droplet. So basically, you think that it's only one cell, but actually, it's two cells or two nuclei, um, which is a doublet, which is a huge problem in single cell RNA sequencing uh, technology because um, you absolutely have no idea if this is technical or if this is just a new cell type.
0: So we have data sets and we used markers that are known from the literature. To differentiate. In our case, if we are working with postmortem human brain samples, for example, we can differentiate between neurons and astrocytes and endothelial cells and oligodendrocytes and so on. And we are actually really happy if we see all the expected cell types being present at, in our sample. And also, but we are looking if the frequency
1: is about as you would expect, right? If we all of a sudden see 20 percent of oligodendrocyl progenitor cells we know something is wrong
0: that's true um, except for we enriched for a specific cell type that is rare upstream so you can do this as well before you load the tip you can fuck sort cells and then obviously you expect different proportions but it is certainly a really good uh, sanity check to see if the proportions here are what you would expect So we do now have our data set we are happy with, with all the cell types we are expecting. But to be fair, at this point, actually we haven't done very much more than you could do with either tissue stainings or with, with, you know, flow cytometry. The next steps are more fiddly, a lot more difficult and a lot more interesting. So this is usually where you zoom into your cell type of interest. For us, this is oligodendroglial cells, so we usually focus in on oligodendrocytes and oligodendrocyte precursor cells. And then we try to subcluster them. And this is where the beauty is of this, this technology, right? Because this is where we suddenly can understand that cells that look very similar and um, are stained for very similar markers are actually different.
1: Single cell RNA sequencing gives us Uh, the possibility to look at cell heterogeneity which was not possible before with other um, lab technology that we had so for example we always assumed that uh we we looking at for example oligodendrocytes and we always thought that oligodendrocytes are the same right because uh, we use markers such as plp or mbp and this is expressed in oligodendrocytes so uh but actually, when we do a single-cell RNA sequencing experiment, we actually find that not all oligodendrocytes are the same. There are some clusters or states or whatever you want to call them of oligodendrocytes that do have a different marker gene expression, and we can distinguish them. I think that this idea has already long come, become true for neurons For example, since long, we know there are different types of neurons. We have interneurons, we have um, projection neurons, we have excitatory neurons, we have inhibitory neurons, then we have GABAergic or glutamatergic neurons. Uh, So this is all true. As in general, in like in the very beginning they were all considered neurons but now we do know a lot about them and that the neurons are quite different and this is true for other cell types as well but the problem here is that the difference are a lot more subtle.
0: We are now at a point where we subsetted our dataset for our cell type of interest. And now we repeat some analysis steps. So we have to look again for variable genes and then we have to repeat the dimensional reduction and the clustering. And I think this clustering now is one of the most challenging steps in the whole analysis. So now it is important to understand that there is no true clustering, no real clustering. We only try to model the reality as well as we can. And this means for someone who analyzes data, in the beginning, quite a lot of uncertainty. And you have to try and um, look for marker genes that characterize a specific cluster. And if you can't find any, then maybe this is not the the right resolution. Maybe there's not the right number of clusters. Maybe you have too many, too, too few. Again, this is a step that you have to do repeatedly to actually come to a conclusion you're happy with.
1: But I think we also should never forget that all of this is bioinformatics and the truth is only like, it's statistics, so to say, Uh, but the truth is in the tissue. So for everything that we find and what we think is a true clustering, we need to validate this on the tissue in the end.
0: Yep, you're completely right. We need to validate. So how do we do that?
1: Well, there are a lot of different ways of validation, but um, it's going back to more standard techniques that we use in the lab. So you can do, um, well, we are looking in the data set, we're looking at mRNA expression uh, in cells. So the first thing is to do, if, does this correspond to mRNA expression of cells in the tissue? And therefore you do a in-situ hybridization and there are different methods for, for doing that. But they're all looking, visualizing mRNA um, yeah, in the tissue But uh, also what you can do to see if the mRNA correlates to the protein expression. So you're looking for antibodies for these markers and do a staining of this. So it's uh, also based on immunohistochemistry. But I also think that there are at the moment a lot of new emerging, very modern uh, validation techniques using uh, multiplexed in situ hybridization. I think this is a bit too much to say now and we should... Uh, dedicate a whole episode uh, on these because they're actually quite cool
0: but you can also use your validation techniques then to look for your clusters which you were not sure if they were doublets or not so there's coming back to that so you could actually look for gene expression of like lineage typical genes within the same cell
1: absolutely we find in our data set uh very consistent clusters that do express markers, but also astrocyte markers. And you're still not sure whether this is true or not. So what you do is you go into tissue and you use markers of this cluster and see if both of these markers are expressed in the same cell. And then you know if this cell is likely to be a doublet in your data set, like an artifact of the, of the method, or if it's a true cell type in the brain.
0: So and, and f- I think from this point onwards in the bioinformatics analysis, um, everything you do from this point onwards is really depending on your question. So often you have some kind of different groups, different age groups or different treatment groups you want to compare. And one thing you could do is just to look for very obvious differences. So this is one kind of subcluster is present in one data set, but not in the other or a lot more present in one than in the other. And this is again, this is uh, something you could validate then in tissue. So you could look for marker genes for that cluster and then um, see if you see a similar distribution in in tissue as well. So, but if there are not huge differences in um, your treatment and control groups or different age groups, um, when you look at subclusters, then you could still look for a number of nuclei detected within each subcluster, and if this differs. So you just, I mean, what you found in your your paper that came out 2019 in Nature was that actually oligodendrocytes are heterogeneous in humans, and you had uh, controls and MS samples and found actually that all the subclusters, um, you and that they came up with. Uh, were present in both MS and control tissue, but the number of nuclei within each subcluster was was very different between control and MS samples. In principle,
1: it was that... um, So the idea in MS until then was that... MS is a disease uh, where oligodendrocytes and myelin is damaged. Uh, So oligodendrocytes are lost uh, and they die, which... uh, uh, leads to demyelination and leads, in the end, to neurodegeneration and um, and physical disability. And the idea so far was that all oligodendrocytes are damaged. But actually, it was quite important that we found that not all oligodendrocytes seem to be damaged in the same way, uh, because some of them are lost, but some others are not. So there's a lot more about, first, oligodendrocytes that we don't know about, but also about... Um, Oligo at uh, the, the disease itself, uh, and this was, this finding would have not been possible uh, without doing single cell RNA sequencing, because well we didn't know anything about oligodendrocyte heterogeneity in humans before.
0: Okay, as we said, what you do downstream from this uh, time point onwards is very depending on your questions, but what people usually or often do is that if they find interesting clusters, they want to understand what makes those those clusters different, so what kind of pathways are act- actually upregulated or downregulated in those cl- cells within a cluster. And um, so you can do something like a gene ontology analysis or a gene set enrichment analysis to better understand those cell states. What also is mentioned quite a lot in talks and presentations is time, and I think this is a really confusing term so we are talking about this very briefly now to say what it is and what you can get out of it.
1: Indeed, this term is very confusing even for people who have used this technique before. When I was giving my first presentations showing some pseudotime analysis, I was checking the definition of Wikipedia and learned it by heart in case people asked me about it. It actually says that pseudotemporal ordering or pseudotime is a computational technique used in single-cell transcriptomics to determine the pattern of dynamic processes experienced by cells and then arrange cells based on the progression through the process.
0: A lot of people are interested in how one cell state might actually develop to be another kind of cell state. And if you work with cell cultures, for example, where you have, where you differentiate cells and you know the timeline, then you can actually really see and observe in single cell RNA seq experiments how sets of genes are switched on or off during differentiation. And you might also be able to do this when you're working with developmental data. So if you're working with uh, developing fetuses, for example, you might see this as well. But in adult tissue, you usually don't have that timeline. You just have a snapshot. And if you have differentiation at a lower degree, it might still be detectable. So people think that you have all the developmental states of the cells present in the tissue. So what you could do is you could use bioinformatic algorithms to align cells along something we call a pseudotime trajectory. So this is a time-like timeline based on their transcriptional profile and then see how one cell state might actually develop in another one and where the trajectories might fork, for example. So it just goes along a trajectory and then something happens where a decision is made that a cell goes either in one direction or the other. This is really cool and it might actually improve our understanding, but it is so difficult to validate.
1: Indeed it is, because it in fixed tissue, we only have a snapshot of what is actually happening and we are not able to follow a single cell to see where it came from and what would happen next with it.
0: So this is, remains very hypothetical always when I see adult tissue data at least. But it is interesting. So it might give you a better understanding of, for example, when we go back to Cyrus oligodendrocyte states, which ones are more immature and which ones are the... Most mature oligodendrocytes, so the end states of a differentiation a profile.
1: I also think that this is very helpful, but also uh, we still don't know yet if, uh, when we talk about pseudotime of our oligodendrocytes, we still don't know if this is a real differential projection or if these are just cells that are there at the moment.
0: Yeah, and you don't know if they go along a trajectory at all or if they switch back and forth different states, right? So this would be an option as well. With this, we are coming to the end of our episode today and also to the end of the four first episodes that were designed to stand alone, to describe the basic principles of single-cell RNA sequencing and discuss the general workflows in the lab as well as concerning the bioinformatics analysis.
1: In future episodes, we are aiming to go into greater detail for specific methods. They might be VAT lab or bioinformatic methods. And for future episodes, we would really like to invite some of you people out there to our podcast to talk to us about your work, no matter if you're a scientist working with single cell RNA sequencing or an industry representative offering methods and kits.
0: Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments, if you have any suggestions, if you have Any wishes to get in touch with us? We do have an email address. at singaselscience at gmail.com. We also are on Twitter. You can follow us there uh, to hear when our next episodes will be out. And thank you very much for listening. And I hope you will join us the next time. Bye-bye. Goodbye.